The only... only... (laughs) I might make that the podcast intro. So much in life is scripted, but this is unedited. Listen in as we have casual conversations about art and faith. Welcome to Unedited. I am Farley Sanderford. And I'm Jennifer Chetland. And in today's episode, we are doing another segment in our series of the book club. We're still in uh, Fujimara's Refractions, and we have two very special guests with us today. I'm very excited. I think we can call this our podcast team. Yes. 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 You guys will, yes. You're reading of the minds. The podcast team. Yes. Behind the scenes, people are joining us on the scene. You guys want to introduce yourselves to our wonderful listeners and maybe say three things about yourself in no particular order? Yes, my name is Dan Reeves. I am a husband and father of three kids. Uh, I work in refugee care mm-hmm. and I sometimes preach in churches. Was that with the permission of the church or do you? <laughs> <laughs> Just randomly. I have something to say. <laughs> Apparently, you wish to edit more than. <laughs> So um, so my name is Cameron Troy. I'm the editor of the podcast. I am a barista. I'm a traffic director. I'm an outreach coordinator. I'm a website administrator. I'm an IT specialist. Um, I am a husband. I am a full-time student. And I do some other stuff as well. But that's most of it. I was... A, this is just a fun fact. One time when I was in college, I was the anchor on a local news station, and I was recognized by the mayor of a small town as that guy who does the news. So I like to use that <laughs> as my claim to fame, recognized wow. by the mayor once. I didn't know you were famous. Yeah, it's true. I am. Good, good to know. <laughs> what else you got, Dan? He kind of showed up with his whole long list, and he's younger than you. Yeah, I know. It's tough. What's and your favorite color? <laughs> 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 That's how you're going to trump Cameron's face. Can I guess? Is it beige? <laughs> oh, man, you all are feisty. For the listeners, uh, Dan and I have a wonderful frenemy relationship. <laughs> <laughs> he bullies the plants at my desk, and I call him Old Esther. <laughs> And that's how our relationship works. Well, they are weak plants. And you are old as dirt. Uh, be careful there, because I am older than... Yeah, than but you don't seem like you're old. Well, thank you. So. We are talking about a chapter in Refractions today. Uh, Nagasaki Koi, like the koi fish, uh, voting booth. And so that's the title. And that doesn't really tell you a whole lot about the chapter. So remember, these are a series of essays. This whole this whole book are a series of essays. This one he wrote in November, I think of '05, if I remember correctly. Maybe yeah, okay. I think that's right. Um, he was invited. Fujimura was invited to be a part of an exhibition um, where the artists were given uh, voting booths, like the actual voting booths that. After the controversial election um, with the whole hanging chads thing in Florida mm-hmm. back in 2004. Mm-hmm. It was a 2000? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was the first special election. Um, so they were, they were given these voting booths, which came in like um, a suitcase and folded out into the voting booth. They were given those to create a piece of art. There were like 50 artists. Uh, included and he talks about um, what he made um, 
the whole idea of voting and how um, voting is an act of faith. Um, and then kind of mixed with, he, he describes himself as an apolitical artist, which mm -hmm. he, he is. I mean, yeah. he was on Bush's, uh, what's that too? He was, he was appointed by him. Was it the NEA? Was he appointed to be head yeah, it was chair of the like NEA? Um, the NEA. National, National Endowment N for the okay. Arts. Um, so he, <laughs> and, and, and Fujimori is a self-identifying, um, Republican, um, but he's very apolitical in his art. And, um, so he talks about that. He talks about what he made. Um, he talks about, uh, ground zero cause he's known as a ground zero resident. Uh, he draws a correlation with Nagasaki where the second atomic bomb was dropped and how that's a ground zero. Um, We'll we'll put a link to this to this in the episode notes so you can read it if you want. But that's sort of the Reader's Digest version. Does anyone read Reader's Digest anymore? My mother in law does. We do too. Yeah. We still get the paper copy of it. Oh, you're so I know. like half page. Yeah. No, like the little thing. Yeah, Brian wants to get it. My husband wants to get it, so we still get it. But anyway. I think my only experience with actual Reader's Digest mm -hmm. is some of the ones from like the 70s and 80s that my grandmother still has by her toilet. I could bring you some new That's ones. Usually nope. where they're <laughs> right. I, to be honest, I couldn't <laughs> tell you what a Reader's Digest is. Oh, I will bring you one. Okay. It's a compilation, compilation of stories. Right. My first question about, to get us talking about this chapter in more specific ways, is what do you think of Fujimara's voting booth piece, the actual work of art that he created? There's an image in the chapter uh, that we can look at. Two-part question. So what do you think of it? And specifically, do you think it is political or is it not political? All right, let me describe Why? the piece just for Give listeners. Us a visual so they take the, the place where you would vote and he puts a screen in there and it's just a video of koi fish swimming and he had the curtains made like so it kind of closes more than a voting booth. So, mm. That was one thing from the description I wasn't entirely clear on. Is uh, the curtains covering it and you view from the outside, or do you go under the curtain to view the piece? Like, in the way that you would enter a voting booth. I think you step into it, like the voting booth. So you go under the curtain to view it? Well, yes. You wanted to make it more private than a normal voting booth would be? Uh, I like the idea of the piece. I like that he made it private and that it, it was sort of, um, he described it as, um, I think he said prayer house or, or a, a, a prayer room or something like that. Um, and, uh, sort of showing the seriousness that voting is. Um, but the very first note I took on this whole chapter was he describes himself as an apolitical artist. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of an apolitical artist to me is as silly as the idea of an apolitical person. Um, I also want to preface this. I am not an artist. Uh, I'm married to an artist. And so the idea of understanding and appreciating art as a culture and a context is relatively new to me. Um, but I think art is such an expression of who you are and you almost can't help but impart your values and ideas into that. So I think it's fine to say that you're an artist who is not a political activist, but an apolitical artist seems to me like something that I don't quite believe in. Did you see politics in my show? No, um, but I think every every piece conveys your values, and I think at the end of the day, politics is largely about your values, the things that you hold to be important and the things that you hold to be um, 
true. And so I think anytime you express your values and your ideologies, which I do think that your show did, um, you're also expressing a, a politics of some kind. So maybe not mainstream politics, but I think, um, yeah, it's kind of like verbal gymnastics around the world, around the word politics. Sure. Maybe, but I have some friends who say, Oh, I don't, I'm not into politics at all. I'm apolitical and I've never found that to be true. And so I, I think art being such a expressive medium, I think apolitical art is like, I don't know if I buy it. Yeah, I think the difference would be like politics is our shared understanding of interacting with one another, what we agree upon as a society. So we're never apart from that, but sometimes we're not overtly political. Mm, sure. So I think that's what he was attempting. Yeah. I think the piece was really interesting because it's starting with something that's not terribly interesting to me. So like aesthetically, the, the, the piece, uh, from even from the image, it, it didn't strike me as really creative, very interesting to look at. Mm. Um, the description of what it was with the koi fish especially made a juxtaposition that was like something beautiful in the midst of something really, really boring. This really silver gray box thing, mm, right. gray curtain around it, and color fit, color, colorful fish in a video piece mm -hmm. that didn't exist there previously right. changed it entirely. You know, um, and I think other artists in the group that were asked to do this did really political things and things like crushing it and and um, kind of metaphorical additions to it in a way that kind of kept it within the political environment where he intended i think to like transcend like the normal discussion about politics and in some way was making a statement saying there's something about the process of voting um, that transcends the two parties and the problems that were had in this thing mm -hmm. which is a fairly political statement almost to say something is broken or something about our trust in the system is is questioned which is a very political statement you know? mm -hmm. Yeah, he also drew attention to um, Nagasaki intentionally, and he mentioned that it was to sort of um, draw attention to the the impact of the decisions that we make. Um, and so I think he did a good job of not coming down one way or the other, but I think the fact that he drew such attention to something like Nagasaki and using something like a voting booth from the 2000 elections makes the piece politically charged, even if he's not trying to convey a political message, people are going to read their own politics into that. Thinking about what you're just talking about with the act of voting um, as being kind of this strange, I think it's a rather strange act. Um, and the fact that it's so designed, especially with thinking about the, the voting booth specifically, so it's supposed to be this very private, secure, individual decision or gesture that you that you make, um, but that at least Fujimura describes as an act of faith, but also as having definite impact, not only literally on the election that you're voting for, but also kind of other other things that happen as a result of that decision. So can you guys think of, of other kinds of individual sort of concrete decisions or gestures um, that we make that are also acts of faith? Or that have that kind of, I don't, I don't want to say eternal impact, but maybe a, a long-term impact. Yeah, I think so. In, in ministries, especially preaching or even like counseling, sitting with somebody, you're entering, to, in, entering into something that you hope works well, you know, and you, you do all the work and the training to be prepared for a situation. 
but you really never quite know if it's going to work out okay. Kind of like voting. You, you step in there and you, you think you know enough about the candidates, but my experience has been a bit terrified as I've entered the booth, closed the curtain, now I have to make a decision and realizing I actually don't know very much about these people, you know, mm-hmm. and about the decision I'm about to make, but I'm going to make it and s- sort of hope that it turns out okay. Mm-hmm. And as a collective body of people, we've made good decisions and sometimes we don't. Um, Sounds like marriage. <laughs> yes. Marriage is like that. Mm-hmm. Preaching is like that. So doing a lot of work, stepping up without having had a dialogue with uh, the congregation about what's on their minds, where are they at? Uh, are they healthy spiritually, uh, mm-hmm. emotionally, that sort of thing, and having to give words to that and hope that you don't do any harm, you know? Mm-hmm. So to me, it, it, the, the pulpit and the voting booth are very, very similar. I think that the way we live our lives in modern society, it's almost impossible to do something without, you know, using some faith. Mm-hmm. Um, from, I'm not a parent, but like parents who send their children to school, like you're putting so much faith in, mm-hmm. you know, the other children and the parents of the other children and the teachers and the, the school system as a whole. And mm-hmm. when you buy food, you are putting faith in um, the the safety inspections and the nutrition label and, and you're doing all of these things, trusting and on some level hoping that it is a safe thing to put your trust and your faith in. Um, and so I think voting particularly is a, is a strong um, example of that. But I think it would be difficult to come up with an everyday act that we do that doesn't involve some level of faith in society or other people. Um, so like I brush my teeth, you know, and when I do that, I'm trusting that the toothpaste is safe to use and that <laughs> when it goes down the drain, it's not going, you know, into some place where it's going to cause harm, you know, it's going to be safely disposed of. And I drive on the roads, which is an absurd level of faith in other Especially people. Especially in Richmond. Oh my God. Richmond is it? Once you live somewhere else, Richmond's. Once you go to, you've I mean, been to the India. Roads, the roads. No, I haven't been to India. You have not been to India. No, oh, but go I mean, to India. Specifically, the roads, the physical condition of the roads. Some of them Richmond are bad. Is, yeah, some of them mm-hmm. are bad. Sorry, V dot, but. <laughs> yeah. So, so the level of faith that we exercise on a daily basis is is almost astounding to me. There's an interplay between people, even in voting, right? So you make a decision based on what they've told you. Mm-hmm. It's true, then. and you make a decision, and you hope that. They actually are what they've said they are, and will do the things that mm. that they promised to do. Mm. Um, and it's an agreement in some way that you have no control over the other half of. Mm. And it, I think that's terrifying. And I, I think if we thought about that too much, it would make voting even more difficult. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds a lot like marriage, too. It does sound a lot like marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I keep having marriage in my mind. I'm like, man. Yeah. yeah. I think we can easily see voting as, as one of the more independent things that we do. You know, I'm making my voice heard and I'm making a decision about how this will be, but you're putting so much faith in the institution and who and what you're voting for. Um, and the fact that like, will my vote be counted properly? And if it does, will, you know, the next level up be handled appropriately. And, you know, even at the end of the process, if the person is elected or the thing is passed, will it be what I want it to be? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, voting, I think we tend to see it as not an act of faith. It's an act of will and an exercise of that, but there's so much faith involved in that. Mm -hmm. The reality of that election, uh, was interesting. I remember being alive and aware of the situation and have, having had voted mm-hmm. in that, but I, I didn't remember how divisive and important what happened after the election was, was actually. Um, 
So, like, the popular vote was was won by Gore, mm-hmm. the Electoral College, you know, by Bush. And then it came down to the idea that there were all these, like, snippets or uh, ideas that didn't go well that might affect the, the vote by 600, 800, 1,000 votes, mm-hmm. which would have been enough to potentially o- overturn the election. Mm-hmm. And then at the last minute, they had, well, they had these things called chads, right? Little snippets of paper. Hanging chads. Hanging That's chads. all you heard on the news for, like, weeks you heard about. <laughs> Hanging chads, pregnant chads. Yeah. All of the... <laughs> pregnant chads. Chads that were, like, punched but not all the way through yeah. or something. Three corners, four corners, all you, of the things. Chads. Yeah. That's all you heard about. The first time we knew it wasn't just a name. <laughs> right. A bad name. Right. Yeah. Sergeant. I was two, I was um, seven at the time of this oh. election, so I might be the only person. <laughs> Thank you, Dan, for the condescending touch. <laughs> um, I might be the only person in the in the room who, who doesn't remember that in any sort of meaningful way. Um, and so... To me, when when the the concept of like this booth was brought up, it didn't evoke any sort of emotional reaction in me, other than the fact that it's astounding that you know even in the year two thousand we were using something as primitive as like a, a punching machine yeah. that pushes little pieces of paper into a box. Like I'm still not sure how that works, <laughs> but the idea that something designed to choose the leader of our country is so like insecure and so potentially fallible is astounding to me. Mm-hmm. Um, even when the artist was describing the the booth um, in the chapter, he was describing how it was like an aluminum briefcase and it had these little wind-up legs and these snap-together parts. I was like, that's what we used? <laughs> like, what's, what is, what is happening? Who let this happen? And it was a, a moment where I think fun, the fundamental faith in the system was broken it, in my life for the first time in really a substantive way mm-hmm. where not only were these chads hanging or not hanging and somebody had to decide what mattered and didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Then at the very last minute, the Supreme court stepped in and said, Mm -hmm. actually, we're not going to reconsider anything. The original first count is going to be the thing, which the public trust in the system is now in the hands of a small group of people, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and it really broke the trust, I think. And so it was a very important time. So to take that piece Mm -hmm. that reflected that situation and to, to make it into art, I think it was an ingenious idea. Um, and, and really challenging and to, to go into it and try to not be political in that mm-hmm. I think that was a really great challenge for mm-hmm. Fujimar so in the chapter Fujimar describes uh, a newspaper reporter's description of the work from the New York Times here's a description of what the reporter said about the piece The only openly Republican participant, Fujimori, kept his political affiliation to himself in Nagasaki Koi voting booth. Peering through a small slit in the dark fabric which covers the booth, viewers glimpse a video of multicolored Japanese carp swimming in a pool near the spot where atomic bombs fell on Nagasaki in 1945. Quote, this piece is about history and tension and the issues we face today in this atomic age, said Mr. Fujimura who lives near Ground Zero in Manhattan. Uh, Quote, I wanted to create a hopeful image, an image that wasn't sarcastic or even political, but that reflects the private moment of voting. I consider it an almost spiritual event. After reading that description by this probably, this reporter who's probably not in line with perhaps Fujimura's politics and political leanings, uh, what do you think about the reporter's description of the work. It was interesting that 
the reporter received it that way mm -hmm. and that cleanly. I think Fujimura was pleasantly surprised that yeah. that happened. Um, and, and in that moment, sort of uh, moves beyond the normal, like, black and white, you know, ones and zeros, you know, mm -hmm. um, political discussion, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. I think the use of the fish put something really beautiful in the midst of something that was really not very beautiful mm -hmm. initially. And knowing that it came from Nagasaki, one of the worst moments in human history, something beautiful even came out of that. Not that we would choose to do that again, necessarily, but even there, something beautiful emanates out of that and out of Ground Zero in, in New York. Something beautiful can come out of that. I think that's a, an attempt to reinstill some faith in, in everything, you know, um, in ministry. If I'm giving a sermon on my worst day, I might have something beautiful come out of that, you know, and hopefully I, I work hard every day and don't have disasters, you know, but even when they happen, it's not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. I think this piece of art speaks to that. And the, the reporter, I think, found that in the piece. Yeah. And the Bible's full of beautiful things coming out of horrible, ugly situations. I mean, that's pretty much it's the gospel. Yeah, I mean, that's all the way through. So there's, there's hope in redemption. So speaking of Ground Zero... When I think, when I say, or when we say ground zero, uh, what do you guys think about? Um, and second part of the question is, can you share about your own ground zero? Any experiences that you would describe as a ground zero for you? 9-11 uh, happened when I was eight. Um, so I think I remember watching the news, mm -hmm. but it didn't mean anything to me. Um, I do remember that I was eating a bowl of Cheerios and that I was wearing my black and white Jurassic Park pajamas. Mm. Um, but I remember watching the footage roll like over and over mm -hmm. and it just didn't, it didn't make sense to me. It didn't impact me in any way. Mm. Um, and in some ways I appreciate that. I appreciate that I didn't have to live with the, how upsetting that would have been and the, the terror and the, and the sense of like looming dread that had, mm -hmm. that had to have evoked in people. Mm -hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like maybe I, I missed out cause I've only really known a post nine 11 America right, right. and I can cognitively understand what some of those changes look like being a person who flies a lot. I recognize that airports suck and I can know that that wasn't always the case that they weren't mm -hmm. always this way, but I don't actually understand great. that. <laughs> they were never great. Yeah. But um, maybe suck less. Yeah. And so <laughs> When I think of ground zero, I tend to think more about um, the One World Trade Center than I do about the World Trade Centers. Um, and I think about the time that I went there and how it really is a lovely place and a contemplative place that you can appreciate and you can think about. But I also mostly think about the post 9-11 politics of it, which is another reason that I feel um, you know, bringing up ground zero in this article as the reporter did, I think makes it almost 
a little more political. So when we talk about Ground Zero in the U.S. and we have these images of Nagasaki, yes, we're seeing something beautiful that is in this location, but my mind is immediately thinking horrific accidents that happened and the political tension that happened with those. And especially when you collect these ideas and place them inside a voting booth, its own politically charged object, I think the whole piece... It does have an element of like, here is a beautiful thing and here is almost a reverent atmosphere around it. But when I think about the actual meaty content of the piece, it feels very politically charged to me. Mm-hmm. So it's almost hard for me to appreciate the beauty of the koi without also thinking, oh, an atomic bomb blew up this city and killed millions of people. Well, and he wants you to, mm-hmm. to feel that. And I think she referenced Ground Zero and he talks about it in other places in the book. He has a hard time. He had to accept being known as a Ground Zero resident because he lived just a few blocks. That is forever part now of his identity. And I think the um, the interesting thing about that is, is when you go through your own personal Ground Zero, your own personal coming apart, that becomes part of your identity. And you can either um, rebel against it and push away from it, or you can accept it and learn from it. I know that's how it's been for me with my own personal ground zeros is you kind of, you get over being mad and sad and all of those other things that happen and you just accept it. And, and then I think that's where the learning and growing happens is when you just accept, okay, this is part of who I am. This is part of my story. This is part of how people know me and you move forward. Well, you've also just described the different stages of grief. Right. And so in order to get to that acceptance, Piece, which is like the last part of it, right? You have to go through the anger and the bargaining and all the other mm-hmm. steps. I don't remember how many there are. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. I think, I don't know if this is true or not, but that ground, the word, the phrase ground zero has ties to both events. Is that true? Yeah, I think, I think ground zero has been used to describe like the location of maybe okay. eight of, of like an explosion or, or something like that. So I'm sure it's been applied to that, that context. Yeah. So I, I find that connection really interesting between Nagasaki and where he lives, and he's creating this piece of art in the midst of this sort of political mess that happened. Um, and I was reading this article or this this essay like within a day or two of, of the anniversary of Nagasaki, you know, which yeah. was just last week, I think. Right. So yeah. it was all of that was playing around in my mind. I wanted to walk in and see the, the piece of art, you know, mm-hmm. and experience it that way because of all of that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember 9-11 happening. I worked in New Jersey, um, in the middle of New Jersey, mm-hmm. often took trips, business trips into the to the city. Just the week prior had been exactly there, you know, at the same time and everything, you know. Yeah. Not that it was, it almost happened to me, but it was really close to home when it happened. Mm-hmm. I was driving in my white car on I-80 going to work perfect blue day, you know, Mm -hmm. sun shining. And the most embarrassing thing ever, I was flipping stations and I happened to be listening to, of all things, Howard Stern, not the most culturally valuable thing on the radio, (laughs) when he interrupted it and what he was saying, some crude thing that he was saying, Mm -hmm. and said, oh, this thing happened. Mm -hmm. And I got to work and it was on all the screens and then we understood what was happening. It was a very strange, surreal situation. Mm-hmm. And then I remember that being a very long day and going home and just watching it endlessly repeat over and mm-hmm. over and over again and to feel the gravity of, of the lost life and the change of the world that happened right there in that moment. Mm-hmm. And thinking, I think, that 
I don't know that we're ever the same after this, you know, wanting it to be true, wanting it to never have happened. But that's sort of true with all ground zero situations, you know, all devastating things changes everything for everybody involved. I, I deal a lot with people who have relationships and breakups and and I have teenagers who I'm talking about what does it look like to enter into dating and relationships and think about the devastation that's possible when you begin a relationship. You're, you're immediately vulnerable, just like, I guess, in the voting booth, you know. You don't really know what's going to happen, but a lot of really bad things can happen and do happen. And and sometimes I don't seem like it's possible to survive, you know. Um, as, a, as, as a minister, I always find there has to be a way to discover that in any horrible experiences that I've been through, there's always been a way out eventually, you know, and to have that sight and make it believable seems to be the real work, you know, it's not really always clear. Just like sitting watching the videos over and over again, I thought there's no way beyond this that we'll be watching this forever, you know, and it wasn't true. Uh, it took a really long time before it wasn't true. I really liked what you said about um, him being known as like, you know, Ground Zero being a part of his identity mm -hmm. now. And I think when things happen, especially bad things, um, there can be a desire to want to go back to how it was before, to sort of reject the reality mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sort of denies the validity of the thing. Um, and so when we have these, our own personal ground zero events, we can try and say, well, I'm going to live my life as if this didn't happen. Um, but I think that devalues and delegitimizes the experience. Um, and sometimes we want to do that. Sometimes we want to, sure. you know, delegitimize a thing. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you don't have the power to do that. You don't have the power to decide what your past is or what your experiences are. And so I think the only way to move forward is to not necessarily embrace it as a good thing, but to embrace it as a thing that happened, a part of your identity. And what does that mean going forward? Like you have to include that as part of your plan moving forward. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Yeah. I was listening to another podcast this morning and they were talking about you just listen to thing. other podcasts. I do. I listen to a lot. I've been listening to a lot lately, especially. Um, and one of the things they were talking about is just what you're talking about, uh, about, uh, control in our own lives and in our own experiences and a lot of things we can't control a lot of things we probably want to but we can't control we can't control other people right we can't control what they do what they do to us um but one thing we can always control is how we respond how we react mm -hmm. when we're met with with those things and so um, I think that's that's something valuable that maybe we can take away from not only this chapter, but talking, especially thinking about these ground zero events. We can't control other people or how they respond, but we can we can control our own reactions. I think the the koi fish video was a risk for the uh, artists take risks, right? They they have a vision Hopefully. and they hope it's received by somebody in some useful way. Mm -hmm. And this was. I mean, out of left field, really, you know, mm -hmm. in, from, to, to envision a voting booth with the koi fish video. And mm -hmm. It's a huge risk for me, but I, but it illustrates something that I think is is true in all of these situations. It's really worth attempting, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it's worth attempting to do it well, but attempting because more things are possible when you take the risk, mm -hmm. you know. So now that there's something beautiful in the midst of this thing that represents something sort of ugly, now it transcends that moment and more things are possible. It might not be received. 
it might not be really useful to a lot of people, but it might. Uh, and the, the, the attempt was valuable. So I was thinking about this in, in preaching, and some days I, I don't enjoy the idea of ministry and preaching. And I have this poem I shared uh, yeah. with Farley. Yeah, it was good. It's a really negative, bitter poem by Christian Wyman. <laughs> it's, it's pretty rough. Uh, it's called The Preacher Addresses the Seminarian, sort of a, hey, you're about to leave this place and become one of me. Uh, here's what you're in for. Um, very honest thing. And I have this little passage I want to read. I think it, it's probably the most digestible passage part of it. (laughs) I don't think there are any cuss words in this one. Um, So it says, all these little crevices into which you've crawled like a chubby plumber with useless tools. Here, have a verse for your wife's death. Here, have a death for your life's curse. I tell you, some Sundays, even the children's sermon, maybe especially this, sharks your gut. Like a bite of tin some beer-guzzling goat either drunkenly or mistakenly decides to sample. I know what you're thinking. Christ's in this. He'll get to it which is a very cynical way to look at, at, at the act of preaching or, or doing ministry. Um, and it doesn't end very well, this, this poem, but mm-hmm. in the midst of this, I was like, you know, it's still worth a try, you know, like mm-hmm. my preparation and my use of words might present something more to, to a situation, you know, might provide more possibilities like the koi fish did in the art piece. Mm-hmm. It took, it took, it takes the, the viewer to something else or to somewhere else that didn't previously exist. Mm-hmm. So keep going, you know. I think we'll end there. Um, Thanks, guys, for coming to be a part of our our book club. Like this is an official podcast team meeting, I guess. I guess we've had one of those. Um, And thank you all for listening. If you would like to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at reachthenations.org. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Unedited. This podcast is produced in cooperation with Hillside Missions and Gallery Edit in Richmond, Virginia. You can reach us at podcast at reachthenations.org.